This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. This is episode 44. We're looking at Genesis 3, 11 through 13. I've titled it The Blame Game. There are six revolutionary and foundational truths in Genesis 2 and 3. We've looked at four of them so far as we've been working our way through these chapters. And today we see the fifth. These six foundational revolutionary truths are going to help you understand God, Scripture, society, culture, politics, even yourself like never before. And the one we see today, this fifth one, is absolutely critical for understanding why God appears so violent at various places in the Bible. If you've ever wondered how to understand the violence of God in the Bible, you must absolutely listen to today's episode. If you've read my book, The Atonement of God, you might sort of have an idea of what I'm going to say. I I do present this truth in my book, uh, so if you, if you want to learn more about this idea that I, I talk about in today's podcast episode, you also might want to consider getting a copy of my book at Amazon. Uh, in fact, if you listen to the short little episode I put out last Sunday, a couple days ago, you know that my book is on a major sale right now. It's 53% off. I don't know how long that sale is going to last. It still is as of today, July 14th, 2016, $6.99 for the book. It's usually $14.99. And I told you a little hint on Sunday how to get free shipping on that book as well. Uh, and the, the, the tip, the trick, was you join Amazon Prime for free for 30 days. Uh, if you want to do that, all you got to do is go to redeeminggod.com slash prime, P-R-I-M-E, and that will take you over to Amazon where you can join for free for 30 days. Then buy a copy of my book on major sale. For, buy a couple. I mentioned uh, last Sunday that I I myself bought 10 copies because I can't even buy the book this cheap from the printer when uh, you add in the shipping costs. And so uh, I joined Amazon Prime, free, 30 days, bought 10 copies of my book. (laughs) Uh, It's a screaming deal. So anyway, buy a couple uh, copies for yourself, read one, pass the others on to friends and family uh, who you think might benefit from reading the book as well. Again, the link is redeeminggod.com slash prime. That way you get Amazon Prime for free, for free shipping, and uh, then buy as many copies of my book as you want as well. The Atonement of God while it is on sale. With that in mind, let's move on to our study today of Genesis 3, verses 11 through 13. Okay, so the way Genesis 3 is often taught, it, it becomes little more than a spiritualized folktale of sorts, you know, sort of along the lines of how the zebra got its stripes, except in, in this case, it's, you know, why humans die, or how, how death came to humanity, or something like that, or maybe why work is hard, or why women have pain in childbearing, you know, or even sometimes, why the serpent doesn't have legs, Those sorts of things. And those truths or those ideas are taught in Genesis 3, but they are not, not even close to the main truths and the most significant truths that we find in Genesis chapter 3. 
And what we're going to learn today from Genesis 3, 11 through 13 is critically important for understanding God, for how we read scripture, for even seeing what's going on in our life around us, in culture. Boy, I see this every day in the news with, with the presidential election here in the United States. I see it in the relationships all around me. I was, uh, my sister was visiting this last week, and you just see this in children. I see it in my own children. I saw it in her children. It's just so inter- interesting to see this truth we, we uh, discussed today from Genesis 3. And it's the fifth foundational and revolutionary truth from Genesis 2 and 3. There's six total. We'll look at the sixth one in a later episode. Uh, to see this, we, it's first going to be helpful to remind ourselves what we saw previously in the previous episode uh, from Genesis 3, 8 through 10. We saw there that after Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God showed up for his daily walk with them. And I told you that it appears from the text that God is, frankly, not all that concerned about them eating from the tree. From God's perspective, from God's relationship with Adam and Eve, not much had changed. He still loved them, still wanted to maintain his relationship with them and his fellowship with them, and he showed up for his daily walk. In the text, it was not God who left Adam and Eve. It was instead Adam and Eve who left God, who went and hid from God. Even though God gave them absolutely no indication whatsoever that he was angry with them or wanted to punish them. He doesn't go on the war path, right? He's not out for bloody revenge. I've often said it in my books and on my blog, God is not angry at you for disobeying in him. God does not punish you when you disobey him. Much to the contrary, quite to the contrary. When we disobey, when we sin, whatever, God only wants to walk with us through the pain caused by our disobedience. He wants to help us in that situation, not punish us for it. But what happens is, it's we who fear him. It's we who hide from him. It's we who separate ourselves from him. He doesn't separate himself from us. He does not leave us alone or forsake us. It's very helpful to remember this if you ever feel abandoned, if you ever feel afraid, whenever you feel alone, you must remember this is not because God has abandoned you or forsaken you. God does not hate you. He is not condemning you or rejecting you. He does not punish people for sin. The only thing God wants is what we saw in Genesis 3. 8 through 10, is to go on a walk with you, to love you, to show you that he still cares for you. Anyway, that's all that we saw last week. If you haven't listened to episode 43, please do that before you listen to this one. It will help you understand what we talk about today. So we pick up today in Genesis 3.11, but uh, this is really right in the middle of a conversation between God and Adam. So just for the sake of context, let's go back a little bit to verse 8 to read it. And what happens there is God shows up for his daily walk with Adam, and Adam and Eve are nowhere to be found. They're hiding in the garden. So verse 9, God calls out, Adam, where are you? And in verse 10, Adam responds, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So God says in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So, again, just like in verse 9, God's not ignorant. He doesn't cry out, Adam, where are you? In verse 9, because he doesn't know where Adam is. He, he knows very well where Adam is hiding. Similarly, here in verse 11, he doesn't say, Have you eaten from the tree? Because he doesn't know what happened. God fully knows what happened. It's sort of like if you're a parent, you hear a big crash, you go into a room, there's a lamp broken on the floor, and your two children hiding behind the curtains off in the corner or something, hiding behind the couch, and the parent says, all right, come on out. Now, what happened here? You have a pretty good idea what happened. I mean, you might not know who did what, you know, exactly how the lamp ended on the floor, but you're not asking the question because you're completely ignorant of what happened. No, you're asking the question as a way to start a conversation with your children about how the lamp ended up broken on the floor. And then, of course, that will lead into a conversation of what the consequences will be and what can be learned from that incident. All right, the same thing is going on here with God's question in verse 11. He asked the question, because he wants to teach Adam and Eve something, and us as well as as, uh, readers of the text. And we'll see what that is here, uh, well, somewhat in in today's study, but uh, also in future episodes as well. But I want want you to first notice what God uh, does do, or maybe what God doesn't do. He doesn't get angry at Adam and Eve. Uh, he, He doesn't get mad. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't lash out at them and say, how could you have done this? You know, why were you so stupid and foolish? You sinners! You've ruined everything, right? He doesn't throw a little temper tantrum of his own. No, you know, he doesn't say, okay, I love you, but I hate you for what you've done. You know, I'm still going to love you, but I hate your sin. Sometimes we Christians, you hear that, you know, God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. No, we don't see that here as either. I wrote a blog post about that a while back. Uh, we should, if you say that God loves a sinner but hates a sin, please stop. You know, we go read the blog post. Just search Google for it or something. Stop saying love the sinner, hate the sin uh, on redeeminggod.com. Nothing like that takes place here. Uh, nothing like that takes place in Genesis 3. Nothing like this takes place in Genesis 4 when Cain kills Abel. In the beginning, the only response of God to human disobedience, is love. That's it. Love. Period. God doesn't blame them. He doesn't accuse them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't get angry at them. He doesn't abandon or forsake them. He just asks a few questions so that Adam and Eve can better understand what is happening to them. There are consequences for disobedience. Natural, logical consequences, and God wants to walk with them through these consequences, and that is going to involve a conversation with them about what they did and what's going to happen. God wants them to know that these consequences do not come from him, that he is not punishing them for what they did. Instead, he wants to walk with them through the pain, yes, there is pain, through the fear, yes, there is fear. Do the consequences? Yes, there are consequences. But none of these things come from God. 
God says, I want to love you and be with you always in and through these this pain and fear and consequences. That's why God asks the question here. He doesn't blame or accuse and condemn. He asks the question so that Adam and Eve can confess what they did. Confession. Speaking of confession. Look, sometimes we religious people get this idea, you know, the wrong idea about the purpose of confession. We seem to think, you know, God is this stern judge up there in heaven. He's angry at us and wants to punish us for what we did. And we sort of think that the, the, the confession is part of the punishment. He's up there, you know, with his angry face, the pointing finger saying, confess, confess, you know, and he wants us to publicly shame and humiliate us before others. But that is not what confession is. Confession when you understand it, is nothing more than agreeing with God about what we did so that we invite him to step into our mess with us. That's what it is. As long as we refuse to confess, refuse to admit what we did, what we're doing is saying, God, stay out of it. I didn't do anything wrong. Keep away from me. And God says, no, I want to help you. I want to jump in the mess with you, the muck and the mire. I want to jump right in there and help you through it. But I can't do that unless you admit what you did. That's what confession is. Once we confess our mess, then God can join us in it and start bringing hope, healing, restoration, reconciliation to the pain, fear, and hurt that the disobedience brought into our lives. So that's what's going on here. God wants to step in and walk with Adam and Eve through the pain that is to come. And so in verses 9, 10, and 11, well, 9 and 11, really, God asked them some questions about what happened. And the answers are provided in verses uh, 12 and 13. It's here we encounter the fifth foundational and revolutionary truth from these chapters. In verse 12, after God asks Adam how he came to know that he was naked, Adam said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. (laughs) So notice, first of all, what Adam says at the end of this statement. He points to the woman and says, she gave me the fruit from the tree. It's her fault. What's going on here? It's blame. The blame game. It's accusation. It's scapegoating. Adam throws Eve under the bus. He hangs her out to dry. He points the finger at her and says, she's the guilty one. It's not me. I'm not the one at fault. She's the one at fault. She's the one to blame. It's not me. It's her. Of course, uh, after Adam blames Eve, God doesn't say anything about that. He turns to Eve in verse 13 and says, "Uh, what is this you have done? In other words, okay, Eve, let's hear your side of the story. And it's very interesting what the woman says. She says, oh, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What does Eve do? Well, she sees Adam blaming her, and so she also turns the blame on somebody else. She blames the serpent. What is this? She is imitating Adam. Remember, we've seen something very significant about imitation in the past. She imitates Adam and attempts to shift the blame elsewhere. He blamed her, so she turns around and blames the serpent. This is the blame game in all its glory. And we humans have engaged in it ever since. Back to the two children hiding in the corner after the broken lamp is on the floor. You enter the room, you see the shattered lamp, bring your two kids out. What happened here? You know what they do. One points the the finger at the other. Wasn't me, it was him. He points the finger. No, it wasn't my fault, it was her. (laughs) 
oh, we see this everywhere in society and culture today. Pick a crisis, any crisis. Yeah, then step back, listen to all the blame and accusation that gets tossed about. Just as I was writing this study, the, the, the guy walks into the club down in Orlando. Horrible tragedy, horrific. Opens fire, kills 49 people, injures 53 more. Horrible thing that happened. But the real tragedy, really, maybe not the real tragedy, but another tragedy on top of that was what happened afterward. Everyone started to point the finger, looking for someone to blame. You hear somebody, it was the Muslims, right? Because the shooter was Muslim. Other people say, no, it's guns. We've got to get rid of guns. Right? Point the finger at the guns. A couple of people don't understand. Point the finger at the gays. It's the gays, right? Homosexuals, they brought this on themselves. Some people point the finger at Obama. It's Obama's fault. <laughs> he brought this. This is what happens in our country when he rules the way he rules. And there were some people who go all the way back and start blaming Bush. It's Bush's fault, right? Then that's the NRA. It's the, the National Rifle Association and their lobbyists. You know, this is what's happening. I even saw some people blaming the shooter's parents, some people blaming the shooter's sister. I've heard all those explanations tossed about in the last couple of weeks. When something bad occurs, people start looking around for someone to blame. And almost anyone really will do, as long as they are different from us. When we find them, someone who's different, they look different, they act different, they believe different, they behave different, we blame them. We point the finger at them and we accuse. And if enough people join us in blaming a single victim or a single group, well, then we can cast them out. We can expel them. We can condemn them or even kill them. Go to war with them. Treat them as less than human. Treat them as monsters or enemies. We dehumanize them. We, we make a scapegoat out of them and blame them for all of society's woes. This is the fifth foundational and revolutionary truth from Genesis 2 and 3. The first one was that humans are built from re- for relationship. We saw that in Genesis 2. Second was that humans are, are made to imitate. It's how we work. It's how we learn. Nothing wrong with that. The third is that imitation awakens desire. This also is not necessarily wrong, uh, but it can have a dark side when we desire that which should not be desired. And when this happens, desire creates rivalry. That was the fourth foundational truth. Desire creates rivalry. And the fifth thing we see now is that rivalry leads to accusation, to blame, to scapegoating. And scapegoating may well be the most important truth or theme in the entire Bible. I am not exaggerating at all when I say that. Genesis 3 shows us the conditions and events that lead to scapegoating the signs and indications that scapegoating is occurring, the consequences and results of scapegoating, and the entire Bible continues to show us these truths over and over and over. In one way or another, the Bible was written to expose the human practice of scapegoating others. Why? Because scapegoating is the primary human problem. Once you begin to understand scapegoating, what it is, how it works, when it occurs, why it's so bad, 
It is then that you begin to understand Scripture, life, culture, society, politics, and even yourself as never before. So what is scapegoating? Let me talk real briefly about scapegoating. Probably the most basic definition of scapegoating is that scapegoating occurs when one person, or maybe it even could be a group of people, is blamed for all the problems in a relationship, a group, or culture, something like that, society. One person is singled out, or one group is singled out by everybody else, and everybody points the finger at them to say that they are guilty for all the problems that occur in that group. Uh, Scapegoating typically works best when two people or two groups, in the past they've had a relationship, but now they are in rivalry with one another. The imitation led to rivalry, and now they're at war. They're at rivalry. There's, There's a conflict between the two people or the two groups, but they don't want that conflict to escalate. They want to stop the conflict. They want to go back into a a, a relationship of peace, relationship of love. And so what they do is uh, neither one can agree. Each one wants to blame the other. And so what they do is, this is a subconscious thing, they put all the blame for their conflict on some outside third party. Uh, These two groups, they were formerly at odds with each other. They now decide subconsciously to blame a third person. And what happens is they unite together. The two groups now become one in in blaming or scapegoating this third person, this third party, for all the problems that had existed. And usually what happens is they cast out, they blame this other person. Uh, They they, uh, maybe they, they have violence against them or... Uh, they, I'm not sure exactly, you know, they, they, they accuse them, they imprison them, they, they cast them out, something like that. And, uh, we, we, now the two people having cast out this scapegoat, they are at peace with one another again, because they successfully transferred the guilt and blame that each of them shared in the relationship onto a third party, cast him out, killed him, expelled him, and now there can be peace. Of course, this peace only lasts for a while, and so the cycle of selecting and expelling the scapegoat is repeated over and over and over. And this cycle, this scapegoat cycle, has been repeated countless times throughout human history. It is the cycle that allows human civilization to occur, that that maintains the peace of a society, that uh, creates unity within a given social structure. You can see it in your marriage relationship. You can see it in your families, the interaction of your neighbors. You can see it how governments work with one another. Uh, René Girard calls this the scapegoat mechanism. It, It creates and maintains peace, but always at the expense of a sacrificial scapegoat victim. How do you know scapegoating is going on? Well, one of the clear indications is finger-pointing or blame. Probably an even clearer signal of scapegoating is when everybody jumps on board and blames one person. When everybody is accusing one person, everybody's pointing the finger at one person. When there's unanimous agreement, this is a clear sign that that person or that group 
is being blamed as a scapegoat. Uh, yes, they may have some guilt. You know, you might say, well, yeah, but they really did it. Well, that's true. In fact, the best scapegoat is one who, who, who has some guilt. Uh, they're, they're, they're not fully innocent of everything you're blaming them for, but that just makes them the better scapegoat. The thing is, is they're not usually as completely guilty or fully guilty as everyone makes them out to be. Uh, we see scapegoating occur right here in Genesis 3, 12, when, when Adam scapegoats Eve. So God says to Adam, what happened? And he blames her, even though, as we saw in previous episodes, he himself is the guilty one. Adam points the finger at Eve and says, she's the guilty one here. And we know that Eve is being scapegoated because down through history, we have all joined Adam in blaming Eve. We discussed this in episode 38. Uh, The episode was titled, The Scapegoating Eve. Uh, Make sure you listen to episode 38 for a better explanation on how we know that Eve has been a scapegoat in human history and why we have joined Adam in pointing the finger at Eve. Uh, The thing is, is Eve is not the only scapegoat here in Genesis 3. There's one other person scapegoated who is actually more universally scapegoated than Eve. Uh, this person is scapegoated here in Genesis 3 and has been universally scapegoated throughout history. And to show you who this is, let's turn, return once again to that, that tragic Orlando shooting. In, in the wake of that horrible tragedy, I, I watched, I listened, I wept as people blamed Muslims, blamed the NRA, blamed Obama, blamed Bush. And then... Much to my horror, but not at all to my surprise. I saw some people blame God. Sometimes even Christians blaming God. And they didn't come out and blame God. It comes like this. You know, I actually saw some Christians come out on Facebook, of all places. Facebook reveals the worst in humanity, I think, sometimes. Anyway, some Christians I saw on Facebook saying this. This mass shooting in Orlando was God's righteous judgment. In one fell swoop, God showed his hatred for both homosexuals and Muslims. Right? Because a Muslim went in there, killed a bunch of homosexual people, and then, of course, the police killed the Muslim, and Muslims are now more hated because of what they did. Okay, right? So this is what Christians say. Yeah, God hates both homosexuals and Muslims, And uh, now we have a right to hate them too. This is God's righteous judgment on them. That's what people, some Christians were saying. When I saw that, I I wanted to reach through my computer screen and strangle the Christians. I'm revealing a little bit of my own heart here, I guess. People who say these things don't, especially at a time like this, aside from how hateful that is any other time, tragedy like this, and you come out and say something like that, you don't even, you don't even, shouldn't even be deserved to call yourself a Christian. Anyway, Do you recognize what these Christians were saying? Yes, they were spouting hatred towards Muslims and gays. But why were they doing this? How were they justifying this hatred? Well, they were blaming it on God. They were blaming God. They were pointing the finger at God. Well, most people are pointing the finger at guns, or Muslims, or presidents, or parents, or sisters, or who knows what. Some people were pointing the finger at God and saying, He did it. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) It's his fault. He did it. He's responsible. These Christians blamed God, and they felt righteous in doing so. They weren't saying, look how bad God is for allowing this to happen. Some people did say that. Some non-Christians said that. God's in charge, and he allowed this to happen. Not a God I'm, I, I want to worship. It's a valid concern. But these Christians weren't saying that. They weren't saying, look how bad God is for allowing this to happen. These Christians were saying, look how holy and just God is for making this happen so that a Muslim kills all these gays. These Christians were celebrating the idea that God's righteousness was on display through the mass killing of gays by a Muslim terrorist, and then he got killed too. That is horrific. While Eve has been universally scapegoated since the dawn of humanity, the person who is most commonly scapegoated is God. And worst of all, God gets scapegoated by people who should know better. I skipped over it before, but look at it now. In the middle of verse 12, Adam blames God. Adam should have known better, just like Christians today. You and I should know better when we blame God. But we see it right here. Beginning of time, after the first disobedient action, God comes along, says to Adam, Hey, Adam, what happened? And Adam says, The woman whom you gave to me, (laughs) yes, Adam blames Eve, but ultimately, Adam blames God. Adam said it was God's fault for giving Eve to him in the first place. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, hey, it's her fault, but you gave her to me, so really, God, it's, it's your fault. You did it. This really is the fifth revolutionary and foundational truth from Genesis 2 and 3. Yes, it is that humans blame, accuse, and scapegoat others. But the real significance of this truth is that the person we blame, accuse, and scapegoat most is God. We see this all the time. When when things go wrong in our lives, what do we do? We lash out in anger and violence at God. You know, we say, we say, God, why did you do this to me? <laughs> okay? Or maybe when, when, uh, when, when we lash out at vi- with violence toward others, again, we blame God. Well, God gave me such a bad life. You know, things are going so bad. I lost my job. I, I wrecked my car. I got sick. You know, God did all that to me, so I had to, you know, it's his fault. If he hadn't done that to me, then I wouldn't have treated other people that way. It's God's fault. God gave me this life. He could have given me a better life. It's his fault for me behaving this way, right? Uh, A husband cheats on his spouse. Or parents neglect their children to chase their own pleasures and pursuits. And we say, what else could I do? You know, God gave me these desires. He wants me to be happy, doesn't he? What are those sorts of statements? Blaming God. When we hate our enemies people of other countries or people of other political parties. Maybe secretly or maybe even not so secretly, we, we wish for their death. You know, bad things happen to them and we justify these thoughts of vengeance and violence. We say, well, you know, look at them. 
They're so depraved and evil. They're always blaspheming God, disobeying his word. Of course they deserve to die. This is just the righteous hand of God pouring out his wrath of judgment upon them. You know, it's, it's not me who wants them dead. It's God who wants them dead. And if we go to war, if we, if we call for their death, we say, you know, I'm just following the will of God. This is what God wants. Not me. It's God. I'm just, I'm just obeying God. This is what causes some Christians to think that God wants to kill Muslims and gays and abortion doctors and, and, and the people who died in, in 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. We saw that. People down in... Um, because of Mardi Gras and the voodoo, all that we saw in the Indonesian tsunami, hundreds of thousands of people died in that. And we, oh, it's because because they're, they're Muslim out there. We saw Christians saying this is the righteous judgment of God. This is blaming God. We, we look at all their deaths and we nod our heads and we smile with smug approval. We say to ourselves, God did that. Oh, he might love the people who died, but he hates their sin. And so he killed them. And the rest of this filthy world better watch out or he's going to kill them too. And then, you know, even worse, send them to eternal punishment and fire and suffering in hell forever. And then we feel better about sending in our troops, dropping our bombs, and calling for the blood of our enemies. We, like Adam, blame God for what has gone wrong with this world. Sad reality is, it's we, ourselves, who are mostly at fault. I've mentioned this in previous episodes. Adam is the primary one responsible for what happened in Genesis 3. But when confronted by God, he blames Eve, and then we all follow his lead and blame Eve with him. But Adam also blames God, and all of us have followed his lead and have blamed God as well the sins we ourselves commit. This is one of the central truths and ideas that the rest of the Bible reveals, especially the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not teach us about a God who is so angry at sinners that he just cannot wait to kill them. Yes, there are lots of passages in the Bible that seem to portray God that way. But That is the wrong way to read those texts. The correct way to read those texts is the way I have presented it here. God doesn't want or command people to go kill others in his name. No, people want to kill others. We are in rivalry with other humans. And so we want to accuse and blame and scapegoat them and even kill them if necessary. But in order to justify our violence and our actions and our hatred towards others, we blame God for it. We say, oh, it wasn't me. I'm just following God. God wanted me to do it. Eve gets a lot of blame for what happened in in Garden of Eden. But the blame that Adam puts on God is instructive for the rest of Scripture, where God gets a lot of blame. For what happens in the Bible. He gets blamed for the flood, for the ten plagues in Egypt, for the mass genocide of the Canaanites when Joshua and Israelites entered the land of Canaan, for, for the wars of Israel against her enemies. Eventually even, near the end of uh, the, the historical books, for the destruction of Israel herself. So does this mean that, that, that the scriptures which portray God this way are wrong? 
No, it does not. If you've read my book, The Atonement of God, you know. Uh, what this means is that the real truth, the inerrant and inspired truth of Scripture, is the truth that most of us have never recognized. And it is the truth that the Bible does not so much reveal God's heart to us, but instead reveals our own heart to us, the heart we do not very often see. We, like Adam, blame God for the evil that is in our own hearts. And Scripture wants us to see this so that we can change it. The violent texts in Scripture are inspired and are inerrant, but they do not reveal to us what God is like. They reveal to us what humans are like. How do we know this? How do we know that this is the correct way to read the Bible and understand these violent portions? We know it because Jesus comes along and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, just look at me. God always loves, always forgives. He never hates. He never calls for the death of anyone, just like Jesus never did. We humans, of course, we don't like this. We need someone to blame for the evil in our own hearts. And so when Jesus came along saying, yeah, God's not like that, <laughs> that's you. That came from your own hearts. What do we do? Well, we don't like that. So what do we do? We call Jesus a blasphemer. We kill Jesus in God's name. We kill Jesus and we say, well, God told us to do it. This guy, he's a terrible sinner and a blasphemer. So God must want to kill him just as much as we want to kill him. And that's exactly what they did. We would have done the same thing if we were back then. But then God raises Jesus from the dead. Why? Not so that Jesus can come back and retaliate in bloody vengeance. No, but to vindicate Jesus and prove that Jesus was right about God after all. And Jesus, when he comes back, it's not so he can kill everybody who killed him. No, but it's so he can say, look, this is what God is like. He loves, he forgives. Really, you know what, it comes down to there's two ways of reading the Bible, especially the violent portions in Scripture. We can read the violent texts about God killing people and ordering his people to kill other people and say, yep, this is what God is like. Sometimes he instructs his people to do these terrible things, but since God is God, you know, he's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. You know, and then we can say, well, I want to love, serve, and honor God, and God is on my side, therefore everybody who is against me is also against God, and therefore God is at war with whomever I am at war with. The only reason I want to see other people killed and go to hell is because that's what God wants for them as well. And as you know, that is a very popular way of reading the violent portions of the Bible. The other way to read these violent portions of the Bible is to say, Oh my, I see myself here. This, this is sort of how I feel about my enemies. These texts reveal my own hateful and hurtful tendencies towards others. When I hate others, I often justify my hatred for them because I think that God hates them as well. That he's on my side, right along with me, hating them like I do. And we can say, these texts... They don't reveal what God is like, but, but my own heart. And when I blame others and scapegoat others and accuse others, and then call on God to fight with me against others, yeah, 
I'm also blaming and scapegoating God, thinking that he's on my side and not on the side of others. But that is not true, we can say. I must repent of such ways, learn to love, forgive, and accept others as God loves, forgives, and accepts me. Now, that's the second way of reading Scripture. And it is becoming a much more popular and accepted way of reading Scripture within the last hundred years or so. So which way is correct? How do we know one way is the correct way of reading the Bible and the other one isn't? Well, the two ways of reading the Bible were put on trial through the life and death of Jesus. Through his teaching and example, Jesus showed that he favored that second way of reading Scripture. Every time the disciples revealed their heart of retaliation and hate and revenge, Jesus said, no. That is the spirit of the accuser that you're talking about. That is not the spirit of God. God does not do those things. God never asks anyone to kill, murder, go to war with anyone. Instead, just like Jesus, revealed in Jesus, God only loves, forgives, walks with people through their pain and suffering, protects people, forgives. Okay, This is what Jesus revealed. Now, the people in his day thought Jesus was wrong. That Jesus, because he was teaching this about God, that God was on the side of all people, even the Roman enemies of Israel, they thought that God was a blasphemer. They had that first way of reading the Bible, that we hate our enemies and we're on God's side, therefore God hates our enemies too. That God wants to overthrow and destroy the wicked Roman Empire. God was so righteous, so offended by sin, that he needed blood sacrifice to appease his wrath, to kill those who disobey his holy commands. That's why the religious people in the days of Jesus, who held that first way of reading the Bible, who held the idea that God is a warrior against all sinners, and they saw that the teachings and life of Jesus were a threat to that way of reading the Bible, that's why they accused Jesus, pointed the finger at him, blamed him, and eventually killed him. They killed Jesus in God's name. And so now we have the two ways of reading the Bible on trial, and what happened again? God raised Jesus from the dead, showing that Jesus' way was the right way. If Jesus' way was the wrong way, Jesus would have stayed dead, proving that the religious, violent way of reading the Bible was correct and that Jesus truly was a blasphemer. God showed which way of reading Scripture was correct. God showed that Jesus truly reflect his own heart and mind of love and forgiveness, grace and mercy towards others by raising Jesus from the dead and then showing that Jesus did not embark on a campaign of bloody revenge against his enemies. God showed us that this is exactly what God has been doing throughout history. We commit violence in God's name. We go to war against our enemies in God's name. We condemn, accuse, and blame others in God's name. And while we are blaming and scapegoating others through such actions, ultimately, like Adam here, we are blaming and scapegoating God. This is what goes on all over the place in Scripture. And God takes it. He bears the shame and the blame. He accepts the guilt. Why? Well, for two reasons. God knows that if he doesn't do this, then our cycles of vengeance and retaliation will spiral out of control. 
So he becomes the scapegoat to stop the endless contagion of violence that threatens all of humanity. But beyond that, that's the first reason. God does it to stop the violence so that we stop blaming each other as much as possible. But beyond this, God takes the blame and the shame so that he can show us a better way. God's way. A way of self-sacrificial love. A way of forgiveness. Through Jesus, God says, look, I know that you blame others as you've blamed me. The only way out of this cycle of violence and retaliation and revenge is is if one party decides to offer forgiveness instead of revenge, love instead of retaliation. And that is what God did in Jesus. And that is what God calls all of us who follow Jesus to do as well. To love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and spitefully use us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Well, that's what we're going to see more as we work our way through Genesis chapter 3, how God does that for Adam and Eve. And especially also in chapter 4 when we see that Cain murders his brother Abel and how God responds to that as well. And really, we see this in the rest of the Bible. We do definitely see the blame, how we blame others and we blame God. But we also see, here and there in the Old Testament, these sparkling gems, these glimmers of grace and mercy and forgiveness that shine through, and then ultimately, perfectly, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then what God calls the church to do as we follow Jesus into the world. We see that in Acts, in the letters of Paul, and the other letters, the letters of John and Peter. We see how to put an end to the blame game and instead live for reconciliation based on love and forgiveness. If you want to hear more about this, please. Look, I write about it in my book, The Atonement of God. Uh, I explain this whole idea in a lot more detail in that book. Remember, it's on sale right now, limited time, $6.99 on Amazon. And uh, if you join Amazon Prime for free for 30 days, you can get free shipping on that book too. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash prime to join and uh, get a copy of the book. Oh, I just looked at the time for this episode. It's the longest episode I've ever I've ever given. Coming up on uh, 47 minutes now or something like that. So I apologize it was so long, but I guess it's good that I won't be putting out another episode for two weeks. That allows you extra time to listen to this one and think about the ideas it contains. Join us again in two weeks or three, depending on how long it takes me to recover after camping in the wilderness of Oregon, when we pick back up with Genesis 3.14 and see some some more amazing truths about how God responds to Adam and Eve and how he responds to you and me when we disobey him and his commands, instructions for our life. Thank you for listening. And I hope that what you learned today was encouraging and insightful as you learn to follow Jesus and have your life reflect him to a watching world.